Hello, and welcome back to episode three of the PGO Recap Podcast. I'm your host, Haley, and I'm excited to talk about some of the most fun and iconic chapters from The Lightning Thief. In today's chapters, our heroes get much further along in their quest and encounter one of the most famous figures from Greek mythology. The chapter titles are as follows. We visit the Garden Gnome Emporium. We get advice from a poodle. I plunge to my death. I become a known fugitive. And a god buys us cheeseburgers. Our summary today is a bit packed, so let's get right into it. After being stranded on the side of the highway in New Jersey, our heroes wander into a garden gnome emporium run by a kindly old woman wrapped in a veil and long gown. They've lost all their supplies and money, and Percy and Annabeth are hungry enough to ignore Grover's assertion that the place has bad vibes. Percy provides one of the worst cover stories of all time, orphans who got separated from their circus caravan. But then again, this is kind of Robin's backstory from, like, the Batman comics, so maybe that's where Percy got it from. Um, As they begin to eat, Percy starts to feel unsettled. He realizes that all the statues feel like they're staring at him, and all of them have terrified expressions etched into their stone faces. As the lady asks them to sit for a photo, the kids realize she has no camera, and also that statue that looked like Grover's Uncle Ferdinand is Grover's Uncle Ferdinand. They've wandered into Medusa's lair, and she holds a particular grudge against any child of Athena. Annabeth gives Percy a glass-gazing ball from one of the pedestals and explains that Percy needs to use the reflection to get close to Medusa and chop off her head. Percy manages to slice her at the neck, and Medusa's head remains as a souvenir, the same way the Minotaur's horn had. The head is still capable of turning anyone who looks into its eyes into stone, though, and Percy decides it's the perfect gift to mail to Mount Olympus. As the children set up a miserable camp for the night, Grover and Percy have a heart-to-heart. Grover confides his life's dream to become a searcher, more on that in Sea of Monsters, and that his first assignment, the one that went terribly wrong, involved bringing Annabeth to Camp Half-Blood five years previous. The heroes catch a train west and stop in St. Louis, where Annabeth insists on riding to the top of the Gateway Arch. Percy is a bit claustrophobic and hates that they're stuck in an elevator with a middle-aged lady and her rhinestone-collared chihuahua, and I hope you're all visualizing this because that is prime mid-2000s imagery. The pair turns out to really be Echidna, a self-proclaimed mother of monsters, and the Chimera, an enormous lion-goat-serpent hybrid. The Chimera blows a giant hole through the arch with its fire, and Percy drops Riptide down into the Mississippi River. With a poisonous bite from the serpent's Ed of the Chimera about to kill him, Percy jumps from the arch into the river in hopes of preventing the death of the innocent mortal stuck on the observation deck. Riptide shows back up, buried in the river sill, and a messenger from Poseidon appears to tell Percy he must go to the beach in Santa Monica before descending into the underworld. Percy is blamed for the explosion that destroyed the gateway arch and officially becomes a fugitive. Ares, the god of war, shows up at the diner our heroes are too broke to eat at and buys them lunch. He sets the trio a mission, go retrieve his shield from where he lost it at a nearby water park. Unable to refuse a direct request from a god, the trio resign themselves to the detour. They fall victim to a trap set by Hephaestus to catch Ares and Aphrodite together, but manage to wriggle their way out and return the shield to the god of war. So now moving into some bullet notes. Um, Annabeth trying to explain the convexity of the glass gazing ball to Percy was hilarious, like, as if he even knows what the word convex means. This is also a callback to the original Perseus using a polished shield as a mirror to slay Medusa, specifically a polished shield that Athena provided. 
The kids returning a poodle who has been dyed pink by his crazy family to collect reward money so that they can buy train tickets. I mean, the creativity here. Like, this has got to be the best plot device for easy cash I've ever read. As Annabeth describes her dreams of wanting to become an architect, we see hints of her fatal flaw, hubris. She wants to build the greatest monument to the gods, ever. In Sea of Monsters, there is a callback to this statement as Percy realizes just how pride can be both her strength and greatest weakness. Athena and Poseidon work together to create the chariot, Athena providing the design and Poseidon creating horses to pull the chariot. Like, I'm telling you guys, this horse thing is my favorite power of Poseidon's. Like, how random, but also I was totally a horse girl, so this wasn't as delightful to me. So the moment when Percy is about to jump from the gateway arch is the first time he actually embraces being Poseidon's son, and that faith saves him. Percy assures himself that the memory of seeing his father's smile was real, that Poseidon must have visited him when he was still in his cradle, and that the god must love him in some way. This assertion of faith and last-ditch prayer to his father works. The water heals Percy almost instantly, and he can breathe just fine and stays dry in the midst of the disgusting river. Also, side note, Reardon really drives home how polluted major U.S. rivers are several times in this series. So we get our first Iris message. Our trio calls Chiron, but they get Luke instead, and Percy is relieved to confide some of his worries, including his strange dreams, in someone. Luke informs Percy that he saw Hades at Olympus during the winter solstice and that it had to be the god of death who stole the bolt. Whoever stole the bolt would have to be invisible, which actually could mean that they were wearing Hades' helm of darkness or Annabeth's Yankees hat of invisibility. Luke protests that he was not trying to frame Annabeth, and wow, he's like a really incredible liar. While Percy never actually takes the bait to suspect Annabeth, Luke managed to frame two parties in a way that seems very genuine. Luke underestimated Percy's loyalty to his friends in this scene, hoping he would turn on Annabeth a bit, but Percy already considers her a friend, so he doesn't really take it in mind to suspect her. Luckily, Percy lies about wearing the flying shoes to Luke because he doesn't want to seem rude or unappreciative, which is the best lie he manages to get out in this entire book. So when talking to Ares in the diner, he literally tells the trio that he was the one who told Poseidon that Hades stole the bolt, and actually says, Sure, framing somebody to start a war. Oldest trick in the book. I recognized it immediately. In a way, you got me to thank for your little quest. Again, incredible foreshadowing by Rick Riordan. We were actually just told the solution to the mystery at the center of the lightning thief. Who stole the lightning bolt? And why are they framing both Poseidon and Hades? Well, Ares frames someone to start a war. This is foreshadowing done right. It makes the final reveal more satisfying, not less, and it provides enough clues that you could solve the mystery yourself. Mysteries are really only fun if the reader has some chance of solving them. Annabeth committing some unapologetic shoplifting, you love to see it. Also, this reminds me of a scene in Heroes of Olympus where Nico and Reyna end up stealing a bunch of shirts from a gift shop in Puerto Rico. Like, similar branding there. Percy's mind is blown by Ares and Aphrodite having an affair, despite Aphrodite being married to fellow Olympian Hephaestus. Annabeth informs him that he's about 3,000 years late on the scandal, 
but Percy is always last on the uptake with romance, like, let's be real, so not surprising. The scene in the Tunnel of Love is the first time we see Annabeth's arachnophobia appear. This becomes, like, really important to her character a bit later on, um, particularly when talking about why she finally left her dad's house, and also a scene in the Heroes of Olympus series with Arachne. So the little metal spiders Hephaestus set to tie down his wife and her lover scare the hell out of Annabeth and make it hard for her to strategize in the moment. However, Percy manages to have some quick thinking. Annabeth and Percy get broadcast live to Olympus due to Hephaestus's trap, screaming as the tunnel of love whips them through a whirlpool. The pair work together to get out. Percy controls the current to keep the boat from smashing apart when hitting the concrete edges and suggests that they jump from the boat to get over the fence, and Annabeth uses physics to determine the best time to leap out of the boat. She mistimes this a little bit and gets them too much lift, but better too much than too little. Our myth of the day is a bit obvious considering these chapters. Medusa. There are multiple origins of the myth of Medusa, and several of them are combined in The Lightning Thief. According to some poets, the three Gorgon sisters were the daughters of a marine deity named Medusa, Stethno, and Uriel. In the older tales, the sisters were born monstrous, and Medusa was the only mortal of the three. In a later conception by Roman poet Ovid, Medusa was a beautiful maiden seduced by Poseidon in the sacred temple of Athena. Furious at the two for desecrating her temple, Athena cursed Medusa by turning her hair to snakes. This Roman version is primarily what Reardon uses as the basis for his version of Medusa. While her origins are debated, the downfall of Medusa is consistent in mythology. In a later episode, we will discuss the myth of Perseus. For now, know that Perseus was the son of Zeus and Princess Danae and under the protection of Hermes and Athena. He was determined to kill the Gorgons. He needed Medusa's head as a wedding present. So Hermes provided Perseus with a sword that would not falter in the face of the Gorgon scales, while Athena gave the hero her own shield of polished bronze. She instructed him to use it as a mirror and look into the reflection while attacking the Gorgons to avoid their deadly gaze. Perseus was then guided to a banquet on his way to the Gorgon's island and was given three gifts by the revelers. Winged sandals, a magic wallet that would become the size of whatever was carried within, and a cap which made the wearer invisible. The three Gorgons were asleep when Perseus found them, and Athena and Hermes pointed out which was Medusa. In the account provided in mythology by Edith Hamilton, only Medusa could be killed as the other two Gorgons were immortal. Perseus swiftly chopped Medusa's head off and dropped it in his magic wallet, safe from her gaze. The other two Gorgons awoke and tried to attack their sister's killer, but Perseus's cap of invisibility kept him safe and he was able to escape. After using the decapitated head to free his island from a tyrant, Perseus gave it to Athena as a gift. She transposed it onto her shield, known as the Aegis. Of the three gifts Perseus receives, we see two of them reincarnated in The Lightning Thief. Annabeth has a cap which turns her invisible, provided by Athena, and Luke gives Percy winged sneakers that make the wearer fly, presumably designed by Hermes but corrupted by Kronos. In this way, the two patron gods of Perseus reappear in this story to provide gifts as well. So now for the selected quotes from these chapters. Um, there's a bunch of longer quotes for this episode, but there's a lot of heart-to-hearts in these chapters. So, First one, quote, I haven't been straight with you, I told Grover. I don't care about the Master Bolt. I agreed to go to the Underworld so I could bring back my mother. Grover blew a soft no on his pipes. 
I know that, Percy. But are you sure that's the only reason? I'm not doing it to help my father. He doesn't care about me. I don't care about him. Grover gazed down from his tree branch. Look, Percy, I'm not as smart as Annabeth. I'm not as brave as you. But I'm pretty good at reading emotions. You're glad your dad is alive. You feel good that he's claimed you, and part of you wants to make him proud. That's why you mailed Medusa's head to Olympus. You wanted him to notice what you had done. Yeah? Well, maybe satyr emotions work differently than human emotions, because you're wrong. I don't care what he thinks. End quote. We hear a lot about daddy issues in these chapters from Percy and Annabeth. They're both trying to convince themselves that actually they don't care what their fathers think of them. They wish they didn't care about their fathers at all, but in their heart of hearts, they care deeply. Being ignored or rejected by their fathers as children is something Annabeth and Percy have in common. As the series continues, they both take steps to work on their respective relationships with their fathers and heal from it somewhat. Next quote. I'm not saying hello to a pink poodle, I said. Forget it. Percy, Annabeth said. I said hello to the poodle. You say hello to the poodle. End quote. Just some levity before we move on to one of our more depressing quotes. Now for that more depressing quote. My dad's resented me since the day I was born, Percy, she said. He never wanted a baby. When he got me, he asked Athena to take me back and raise me on Olympus because he was too busy with his work. She wasn't happy about that. She told him heroes had to be raised by their mortal parent. But how, I mean, I guess you weren't born in a hospital? I appeared on my father's doorstep in a golden cradle carried down from Olympus by Zephyr the West Wind. You'd think my dad would remember that as a miracle, right? Like, maybe he'd take some digital photos or something? But he always talked about my arrival as if it were the most inconvenient thing that had ever happened to him. When I was five, he got married and totally forgot about Athena. He got a regular mortal wife, had two regular mortal kids, and tried to pretend I didn't exist. Here, Annabeth explains some of her contentious relationship with her dad and provides context as to just why a seven-year-old was on the run and needed to be escorted to Camp Half-Blood five years ago. Percy notes that she has a gold college ring looped around her camp necklace and deduces that it is her father's and wonders why Annabeth wears it if she really has written him off. Earlier in the scene, she tells Percy that if her father had been taken by Hades, she would leave him to rot, which is a baller line, but also devastating. Annabeth is just a kid trying desperately not to care about someone who has hurt her deeply, but deep down, she really wants her parents' approval and their love. So on to the next one. Quote, The snake lady made a hissing noise that might have been laughter. Be honored, Percy Jackson. Lord Zeus rarely allows me to test a hero with one of my brood. For I am the mother of monsters, the terrible Echidna. I stared at her. All I could think to say was, isn't that a kind of anteater? End quote. Percy loves to make things more difficult for himself. He almost always manages to accidentally insult whatever monster or god he is facing. Our next quote is once again a bit longer. Quote, I backed up and looked down at the water. I remembered the warm glow of my father's smile when I was a baby. He must have seen me. He must have visited me when I was in my cradle. 
I remembered the swirling green trident that had appeared above my head the night of capture the flag when Poseidon had claimed me as his son. But this wasn't the sea. This was the Mississippi, dead center of the USA. There was no sea god here. Die, faithless one, Echidna rapped, and the chimera sent a column of flame toward my face. Father, help me, I prayed. This is the first time Percy fully accepts Poseidon as his father, and the first time he really prays to him. Earlier in these chapters, Percy tried to claim that he didn't care about his father because his father didn't care about him. Here, Percy is beginning to realize that Poseidon does love him in the best way he can, which frankly is not very good for a parent, but the gods have a low bar to clear. As the series goes on, Percy figures out the boundaries of his relationship with Poseidon and comes to truly believe that his father does love him, but from a distance. Percy also allows himself to love his father and forgive him for his shortcomings. This scene, where Percy begins to embrace his heritage as the son of the sea god, is the beginning of that. Next quote is once again, fun. Quote, I don't know, just a feeling. Annabeth, come with me. Are you kidding? She looked at me as if I'd just dropped from the moon. Her cheeks were bright red. What's the problem now? I demanded. Me go with you to the, the thrill ride of love? How embarrassing is that? What if someone saw me? Who's going to see you? But my face was burning now too. Leave it to a girl to make everything complicated. Fine, I told her. I'll do it myself. But when I started down the side of the pool, she followed me, muttering about how boys always mess things up. And they are such 12-year-olds. I love them. Like, of course, Annabeth is quickly proven right because all of Olympus does see them broadcast live from the Tunnel of Love as Hephaestus's trap springs into action. This does not endear Percy to Athena, by the way. Next quote. Once we caught our breath, Annabeth and I got Grover out of the photo board and thanked him for saving our lives. I looked back at the thrill ride of love. The water was subsiding. Our boat had been smashed to pieces against the gates. A hundred yards away, at the entrance pool, the cupids were still filming. The statues had swiveled so that their cameras were trained straight on us, the spotlights in our faces. Show's over, I yelled. Thank you. Good night. Okay, so first of all, the fact that this worked and actually stopped the broadcast, like, Hephaestus isn't too unfair. And now Percy wants to go fight the god of war, and he somehow does not realize how poorly that will go for him. That's the end of our quotes for the day, but I think these chapters really exemplify one of the things Reardon does best, which is balancing humor with genuine heart in his story. So now moving into the discussion for today's episode, which again is just a section where I give a lot of opinions all at once. Choosing Medusa to serve as the first major obstacle on the quest was a great move on Riordan's part. And just in my opinion, the Furies that showed up on the coach bus were dispatched quickly and used more as a plot device to get the kids off the bus, so I don't consider them a major obstacle, more of just like an inciting incident. So Medusa is a monster created by Poseidon and Athena and would not exist in her current form if it weren't for the feuding between the two gods. This ties into Annabeth's complicated feelings surrounding becoming Percy's friend and reminds her of why Athena hates Poseidon. Both of the kids take their parents' side in the millennium-old argument, obviously. In a lot of ways, though, Medusa is the real victim here. 
Over and over again, gods take out their issues on mortals. They cannot directly target, kill, or even really harm another god, but they can torment the humans those gods are associated with. Medusa's life is essentially collateral damage in Athena's mind. While Medusa is somewhat complicit in desecrating Athena's temple with Poseidon, the god really holds more fault in the situation. As this is a children's series, Reardon glances over a lot of the sexual violence that either happens or is a threat in many Greek myths. As readers, though, we know that Medusa probably didn't have much choice in where she and Poseidon hooked up, as she held significantly less power in that relationship. Moreover, Athena's punishment tormented Medusa, but caused a lot of suffering for innocent people who happened to run across Medusa as well. By the time of the lightning thief, Medusa has obviously turned malicious and clearly delights in drawing people to their death, but she wasn't a murderess or evil in her mortal life. When Athena turned her into a monster, she corrupted not only her body, but also her soul. In general, Reardon seems to choose more famous monsters from Greek mythology as antagonists in the earlier books and digs deeper into more obscure figures as the series progresses. This could be because he ran out of the more typical monsters, but also by later books he had created a base of knowledge about Greek mythology that allowed readers to catch on to who the monsters were more quickly. And of course, there are some famous heavy hitters that Reardon saves for Heroes of Olympus. The choice of Medusa is at once obvious, as she is arguably the most recognizable Greek mythological monster, and more children would be familiar with her. They would be able to figure out just who that kindly old lady really was even before Percy catches on, and remember one of the best things about mysteries and fiction is the chance to solve them for yourself. On the other hand, Reardon's choice creates more tension between Percy and Annabeth as they are once more reminded that their parents are at odds. Although Annabeth interprets Medusa as a warning to not mingle with Poseidon's offspring too much, lest something similar happen again, there is an alternative explanation. In a way, Medusa could be taken as a warning to not let divine divisions influence the personal relationships of demigods. Medusa is a horrendous evil unleashed into the world for extremely petty reasons, and the world would have been better off if Athena had just let the offense go, and to be fair, if Poseidon had decided to schedule his hookup literally anywhere else and not been holding a grudge about Athens. Rather than taking Medusa as a reminder to enforce the Athena-Poseidon feud, she should probably be taken as a warning to let old grudges go. I believe this was intentional in Reardon's part, particularly because he addresses the problem of holding grudges later in the series more directly with Nico D'Angelo. Now to once more talk about the actual structure of the novel. The structure of The Lightning Thief reminds me a bit of a video game. There's an overarching quest for our heroes, but they must complete multiple side quests to continue on their path. They have to battle many villains before going head-to-head -head with the big boss. Medusa, Echidna, and her chimera, then Hephaestus's automated trap are little missions in these five chapters alone. Of course, The Lightning Thief is also structured on other famous quest narratives. Sea of Monsters is more obviously based on the Odyssey, but Percy's journey in The Lightning Thief bears some resemblance to Odysseus's as well. We'll talk about this more once our trio hits Las Vegas. Although Percy's namesake is Perseus, a hero who coincidentally was a son of Zeus favored by Athena, which Percy is very much not in these books, I find that Reardon draws the most parallels between Odysseus and Percy throughout the series, or at least Percy shares the most similar experiences with that ancient hero. 
In the episode I will be doing about the Lightning Thief film adaptation, the structure of the story will be discussed in more depth because the movie rather famously fumbled it. However, I will say that this video game format or classical epic quest format, whichever you prefer, works very well for a middle grade novel. These conflicts with high stakes keep the attention of children engaged and helps them remember events in the story more clearly. They can hold the timeline in their head more easily when listing it out like Minotaur attack, killing Medusa, destroying the gateway arch, getting trapped in a theme park ride. If you are reading the book aloud to a child one chapter at a time, for instance as a bedtime story, the child being able to remember the timeline is vital. It also means that each chapter read aloud is exciting and has its own mini arc, making it a complete bedtime story on its own. As I was writing this outline, I realized this structure could very well stem from Reardon originally using Percy Jackson as a bedtime story for his own son. Reardon might have pulled several tales from those original stories and worked them into the novel as a whole. Knowing Reardon and how much value he places on these novels being meant for children, I would not be surprised if he intentionally formatted most of the chapters to be solid standalone stories because he anticipated them being read to children one at a time. Finally, our Taylor Swift song of the day is We Are Never Ever Getting Back Together. Annabeth and Percy both assert that they want nothing to do with their fathers in these chapters, like, ever. However, like the on-again, off-again relationship Taylor is detailing in this certified bop, seems likely that they actually aren't giving up quite yet. Also, I think Hephaestus would benefit from giving this song a listen and internalizing the message. It's been 3,000 years, bro. Maybe you should just let Aphrodite go and, like, file for a divine divorce? Whatever. Anyway, thank you so much for tuning in today, and I hope you'll be back to hear the recap of chapters 16 through 22 of The Lightning Thief. We'll be doing seven chapters instead of five as we close out the first book in the Percy Jackson and the Olympian series. You can find the podcast on Twitter at PGO underscore podcast. Stay safe, and I hope to see you back here soon.